good morning to everybody here. My name is Dave. Uh, if it's your very first time here this morning, welcome to Connect. Uh, we're so pleased that you uh, chose to come and join us here this morning. I know we've got some folks who are watching online right now, so good to see you guys as well. Good morning. So we're going to start out this morning by playing a little bit of a game, and uh, it's one of those games that you can play along here in the audience, and you'll either be super bold and you'll shout out the answers or you'll just kind of whisper them because you just don't want to shout out the wrong answer. But we're going to kind of go around the world here a little bit and we're going to try and discover what country is famous for this particular food. So if you travel around the world, you'll find that there are some countries you can go to and, and that's, this is their food. Like if I lived in this country and I was out of the country for a while, when I get back, this would be the dish that I probably miss the most because this is the dish that I grew up eating. This is the, the meal that I enjoyed the most. So uh, the very, we've got some pictures to help you. Uh, the very first picture we got is a plate of pie, paella. Paella. I'm saying that terribly, but that is from a country. Anyone want to take a little guess what? Yeah, it's very good as well done. The brave person, people who shout out Spain is where you'll get some good paella. <laughs> and I apologize to any Spanish-speaking people this morning. I'm butchering that name. Uh, all right, next one, dumplings. Anyone got a guess as to what country in the world dumplings would be the... China, I heard it, someone said it, yes, it is China. Now, some of you are like, wait, I thought it was orange chicken. No, no, we, we like orange chicken, that's maybe our favorite Chinese food, but if you went to the country, China, you'd find that actually dumplings is kind of their national dish, it's what they like the most. All right, next one, roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, come on. Yes, this is where I'm from, and there's nothing like it in the world. I would recommend that all of you go to England just to eat one of those meals. Roast beef, roast potatoes, there's some carrots there. Oh, man, I'm hungry just looking at it. All right, so we start out with some easy ones. going to get a little bit trickier here. Uh, this next one, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, is poutine. Poutine. Yes, well done. It's our northern neighbors, Canada. Apparently, this is their uh, favorite dish up there. I've, I've never tried it. Casey actually got to try it recently at a restaurant we were at, so poutine. All right, last one, dal bat. Dal bat. No, no. I'll give you a clue. I got to eat this a lot a couple of months ago. This is from Nepal. So if you go to Nepal, this is like the national dish. This is what they get to eat a lot. I was in Nepal earlier this year, and uh, so I ate this a lot, and it was great, uh, but I'm a little embarrassed to admit that after uh, spending 14 days in the mountains, we were on a hike trekking through the mountains in the Himalayas. After 14 days of being in the mountains, we returned back to the city of Kathmandu, and there were some beautiful restaurants and plenty of choices of places to go. And I'm like, you know where I want to go and eat? And our group, this is where we found ourselves the very first night we got back to Kathmandu. Yes. <laughs> we went to the Hard Rock Cafe. I had a cheeseburger, fries, and a strawberry shake, and it tasted fantastic because I ate the national dish of America, which is, I think, hamburger, fries, and a strawberry shake. So... Um, isn't it true, though, that, that if you have traveled, you notice that there are some things that you're just hungry for when you're not there? Like if you grew up here in central Illinois and you left for a while and you came back, I know that probably one of the things you had to do while you were home was go to Monocle's 
Make sure you ordered a salad, got some of their red dressing, got enough off of it so you didn't just put it on your salad, you get to dip your pizza in it as well. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, that's the way to eat monocles. And, and people travel across the country, but when they return home, they're just hungry for that taste of home. You know, we're actually looking at some phrases that Jesus said, and in talking about hungry, we're going to continue on in our series, Upside Down, because Jesus talks about being hungry. We're going to learn this week that this, this phrase Jesus uttered in a sermon that we refer to today as the Sermon on the Mount addresses the idea of hunger. You see, in this particular sermon, thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago, that Jesus uh, spoke to a big crowd on a mountainside one day, and he was talking about a new kingdom. The crowds had gathered because they'd heard of this man who was talking about this brand new kingdom, and they were excited because this new kingdom sounded incredible, and they wanted to be a part of it. And he was explaining that this was a kingdom that he had come to establish, an author by the name of Sky Jathani says that the Sermon on the Mount is descriptive of who has the most to gain by the arrival of his kingdom. Who has the most to gain? He's talking about this, not only is he talking about this new kingdom, but there are people who are excited thinking, man, this, this kingdom is for me. I like the sound of this kingdom, and it sounds like I actually could be a part of this kingdom. And the people listening to Jesus that day would have, would have understood that it wasn't some kingdom that existed in the future, a place that we go to one day when we die. It was a kingdom that begins here and now, one that we can be a part of. Today is a kingdom that, that's relevant to us as well. And we're learning in this series that the characteristics of the person who will find themselves at home in this kingdom are completely upside down from what the religious people were teaching in the time of Jesus. This became great news to that crowd gathered on that mountainside that day. Because the vast majority of them had already disqualified themselves from ever being able to be a part of any kind of kingdom like this. Whether it was their status, their ethnicity, their social standing in the community, their lack of power or privilege, their sickness, their sin. As they looked at the religious system in place in that day, they said, well, I could never be a part of that. Maybe you find yourself here this morning and, and, and you've kind of looked on from afar at the church and thought, well, that, that's great and that's great for those people, but I'm not sure that I could ever fit into a, a, a system like that. I don't know that God's got room in there for me. But Jesus was breaking the mold. Jesus was turning this system upside down. He was explaining that, that those people who felt distance, those people who felt like they didn't belong, they were exactly the people that Jesus was coming to seek and save. And he opens up this famous sermon with what we, we call today the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, you might have heard that, that sentence, that phrase, it, it refers to these eight sentences that Jesus spoke that kind of defined what it was like to be a part of this kingdom. We've been looking at these eight phrases, and um, this morning we're, we're going to talk about the fourth Beatitude, the fourth thing he said, and they all kind of stand alone, but you're going to find out at the end of the message today that actually they also build upon each other. But the fourth statement that Jesus makes 
is he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this thing called righteousness, for they will be filled. So what is this righteousness that Jesus is speaking of? I mean, let's be honest, righteousness is not a word that we use an awful lot in our everyday conversation, is it? If I'm honest, the only times I hear a word like righteous is maybe crush the turtle on Finding Nemo, describing a wave or a swell, it's like righteous. (laughs) I don't use the word righteous or righteousness very often in everyday conversation. It's kind of a biblical word, and I want to help this morning um, us understand what Jesus meant when he used this word. So, So to break it down, probably the most literal meaning of this word righteousness in the context of the way Jesus was using it that day is the definition in good standing. Righteousness, it literally just meant that somebody is in good standing. So what do I mean by that? Well, Imagine this morning that um, there was something that you excelled at. Let's say you bake scones and you are just the best scone baker around and people are always talking about how amazing your scones are and, and they're saying, you know, you should open a shop and you should sell your scones. They're amazing. Or maybe you're somebody who's good with your hands and you fix things and you're really good at repairing and someone's like, you know, you should open a shop and you should, you should allow people to come in and you can charge money to fix their items. Maybe you could fix some things and sell them. You should, you should start a business. And whether it's making scones or fixing appliances, you're like, you know, I am. I'm gonna do that. But you can't just walk into an empty store and just start selling scones. There's a process. The very first thing you have to do is you have to get onto the um, Secretary of State's website and you have to go to a page where uh, you apply for what's called a certificate of good standing, right? Here is a screenshot of the Illinois Secretary of State website. Right there is the certificate of good standing page and you fill out this form and you answer all these questions and if you get them all right and you've got all the paperwork you need and all your documents are in order and uh, you submit whatever fees there are, you will receive back from the Secretary of State a certificate of good standing. It looks something like this. I think we've got a picture of one. um, There we go. So it would be something like that. And that would say that in the eyes of the state, in the eyes of the law, you have done everything necessary uh, to open a business. You are in good standing. Your I's are dotted. Your T's are crossed. We're very happy with you. You are good to go. I was actually researching this this week, and and obviously getting a certificate of good standing is a really good thing, because I came across one website which was explaining how to get a certificate of good standing. This was their homepage, and you can see how happy these people are that they've received their certificate of good standing. I mean, look at that. I want to get one. If it's going to make me that happy, we're like, woohoo, we've got our certificates. Some graphic designer just (laughs) searched for some stock image. He's like, I'm going to put this here. But it's a great illustration of what righteousness would have meant in Jesus' time. Because to be righteous, what it meant was to be in good standing with God. I've met all the requirements. I've done what needs to be done. I've, I've, I'm in the right place, and I'm in good standing with God. So when Jesus is talking about righteousness, that's what people are understanding him to say as they're listening that day. And to be honest with you, for some of the people in the crowd, it would have been a little disappointing because they, they would have said, well, then that's me out. 
doesn't matter how much I hunger and thirst for it, I will never be righteous because you don't understand what it takes to meet good standing with God. You see, up until this point, this day that Jesus was preaching, we can read in the Old Testament that God had put these requirements in place. They were called the law. He gave this law to Moses. And this law helped the people of Israel understand what they needed to accomplish, what they needed to do to get to that place of good standing, both with God and the community that they were a part of. In fact, if we were to look at a couple of books in the Old Testament of our Bibles, books like Leviticus or Numbers, we'd see that the Israelites, they came up with this very complicated, complex system that determined whether or not people were in good standing with their community. Now, some of these things would have involved sacrificing animals to, to atone for the wrong things they had done. But then there were these other laws put in place, complicated laws. For example, if you gave birth to a boy, you were deemed unclean for 33 days. Now, strangely enough, if you gave birth to a girl, you were deemed unclean for 66 days. And this meant you weren't allowed to go to the temple. You weren't allowed to be a part of the community. You weren't allowed to worship with others for two months. Leviticus 13 says that if a man has a sore on his head, he's banished from the community until that sore goes away. It also says that if that sore never goes away, he can never return. And then he goes on to say that if someone has sores all over their body, not only could they never come back, they had to tear their clothes and scream out unclean anytime they were around other people to make sure that people distance themselves from them. There were actually over 600 laws and policies that determined whether you were clean or unclean. Clean meant you were in the community, you were in good standing. Unclean meant you were banished from the community. Now what you need to understand is this started as a system that God put in place for the health and well-being of the community. Some of these laws made a lot of sense if you look at them today from a health point of view. You know, they were helping stop the spread of disease, that kind of thing. But over time, these laws that were, that were meant to be good, they kind of devolved. They became so strict and rigid that over the time, it just ended up separating the righteous from the unrighteous, the people who felt like they belonged from the people who didn't belong, the clean from the unclean. The ones who were in good standing with God were now separated from the ones who were no longer in good standing in God. And what that basically meant, and I'm oversimplifying this a little bit, but what it basically meant is when Jesus shows up, you were basically in two different camps if you were an Israelite. If you were an Israelite who was healthy and wealthy, you were declared clean and righteous before God. But if you were unhealthy or poor or a foreigner, you were, de you were deemed unclean and unrighteous before God. So there were people on that mountainside that day listening to Jesus who had already written themselves off, already determined that I'm not righteous. I cannot be righteous it's not even my fault. I was, I was born with this condition. I was born into this family. This is who I am. But because of this, because of these systems that are in place, I'm now unrighteous. And Jesus comes along and he turns all of that upside down. As he teaches on that mountainside that day, he's beginning this, this revolutionary journey that would ultimately end with his death on the cross 
of turning everything upside down, of establishing a new way of connection between God and mankind. We see glimpses of it in the life of Jesus. As you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the four accounts in the New Testament of the life of Jesus. As you read those accounts of the life of Jesus, you see Jesus at work. You see this this brand new upside down world starting to come to be. Luke, one of the guys who tells us about the life of Jesus, he, he tells an amazing story about an encounter that Jesus had with a woman one day. We learn from Luke's account that she had a condition that meant that she'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. This condition meant she was unclean and she was therefore banished from the community. This would have meant that for years and years she would have searched for a cure and had never found one. So ashamed and alone, she sat outside the city gates longing, longing to be a part of her former community. But this bleeding and the shame and the embarrassment were always with her. So Luke tells us in that story that in an act of desperation, she hears about Jesus. She hears that Jesus is in town. She manages to to push her way through the crowds, which would have been so taboo in that day for someone unclean like that to be around other people. But she was so desperate, so determined, so sick of the life that she'd been a part of. She pushes through the crowds in the hope that he can heal her and restore her and make her clean again, make her righteous, get her back to a place of good standing with God. Shaking with fear, she manages to just reach out and touch the very edge of his cloak. She doesn't speak to him. She doesn't engage with him. She doesn't ask her to touch him. She just reaches out in faith thinking, if I can just touch the edge of his cloak, And in that moment, we read, Luke tells us, she was instantly healed. This condition that had plagued her for 12 years, instantly healed. But Jesus knows. Straight away, Jesus knows. He actually asks his disciples, who touched me? And look at how Luke, the writer, describes this scene. Because the disciples are like, Jesus, there's a lot of people around here. I think a lot of people touched you. But in Luke 8, 46 through 47, he says, Someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. And when the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble, and she fell to her knees in front of him. Twelve years of shame and pain and loneliness and disconnect from a community that she so longed to be a part of. And now this woman finds herself on her knees in front of all these people who had declared her unclean, who had said, you are unrighteous and therefore unloved by God. And she has to explain why she just did what she did. Imagine the fear in that moment as she tries to explain to Jesus what's happened. The whole crowd in verse 48, the whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. And listen to how Jesus responds. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in peace. Can you imagine what those words must have sounded like to that desperate woman that day? After all these years of feeling abandoned and rejected, that I don't belong. She didn't have to climb her way back up. She didn't have to do a lot of things. Just in that moment, just one encounter with Jesus He says, you're you're clean, go in peace. 
the amazing thing is, that's just as true for us today as it was back then. Wherever you are this morning, whatever you've been through, whatever you're struggling with, just, just a touch of Jesus, just, just, just reaching out to him this morning, you could hear those same words yourself, go in peace. Because look at what's happening here. He spoke to a woman who'd been deemed unclean and unrighteous in the eyes of everyone else, and he says, you are clean, you are whole, you are righteous, you are loved by God. You're in good standing with God. You're restored to the community. This is a world where righteousness, this idea of good standing with God, it was so hard to attain. Many were outside of the community because of something in their lives, and Jesus is turning it upside down. And this is what made the Sermon on the Mount so revolutionary. Jesus was talking about a new kingdom that everyone was welcome to join. Anyone was welcome to join. And that through him, anyone could be a part of this kingdom. It was available to anyone. And in this statement that Jesus made that day, he was basically asking a question. How hungry and thirsty are you? How hungry and thirsty are you? How much do you want to be a part of this kingdom? Sometimes... In the Jane family, we'll be approaching a mealtime and um, I'll find myself saying to Case, you know, hey, we need to think about dinner here or we need to go, go out and get something to eat because I'm starving. I'm starving. I say this all the time. <laughs> she's like, she's my wife's very literal. She says, you're not starving. <laughs> I mean, you might be hungry, but you're not starving. <laughs> and she's correct. I mean, just one look at me. I'm, I'm not starving. <laughs> I've got quite a lot of resource here to keep me going for quite a while. So, um, but I'm hungry. Sometimes I'm hangry. <laughs> I'm getting to that point where, no, I've got to eat because I'm getting kind of mad here. As Jesus is talking to these people, what's fascinating is many of the people, because of the amount of poverty in the world at that time, in Jesus' time, there would have been people in that crowd who may have had gone for hours, maybe even days, without eating. There could have been people that day who were literally starving. And Jesus brings up this phrase, he says, any of you who hunger and thirst for righteousness to a group of hungry people. He's basically saying, hey, you know how you feel right now? You know how some of you, your, your stomachs are rumbling? You know how some of you are just so, that desire you've got to eat, that, that hunger that's kind of almost painful because you're so hungry. That's the kind of hunger that you should have for wanting to be Righteous for wanting to be in good standing with God. You know, as he said that, it's, it's, it's interesting as well to think about the culture in which Jesus was in. How people would have heard those words of hunger and thirst with relationship to God. I don't know about you, I do this a lot. I'll, I'll hear someone say a word, and whatever that word is, if that word happens to feature in a song, especially a catchy song, I'll find myself instantly singing that song in my head. Someone just has to drop something around me and be, whoops, and I'm like, I did it again. <laughs> I'm just straight there, and I'm singing that, you know, for the rest of the day. <laughs> Maybe there's a word you hear, and it takes you to a song straight away in your head. Well, in Jesus' time, the Psalms that were written in the Old Testament, they were like songs. That was the hit music of the day. These, these were songs that they would have heard growing up, that they would have heard sung amongst their friends and their relatives and within the religious community. 
So when Jesus talked about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, people in the crowd that day, in their mind, would have gone to that famous song in Psalm 42, verse one through two, that said, as a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you. God, I thirst for you, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? This would have been famous psalm, a famous song in that day. When Jesus spoke about hunger and thirst, people in the crowd would have been singing that song in their head. Maybe they would have thought of Psalm 63 that starts out, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I think people would have understood what it meant to hunger and thirst after God. To hunger and thirst to be a part of that community that belonged to God. But there were many who felt like, it doesn't matter how much I hunger and thirst, I'll never belong. But Jesus is turning all of this upside down. And he's saying, hey, you'll be blessed Blessed means happy. You'll, you'll be happy if you understand what it looks like, what it feels like to hunger and thirst in the same way. To hunger and thirst for that righteousness. But this is what's important to remember. And this is why this ladder that's been on the stage this whole time is here. Because I know some of you is bugging you. You're like, did someone leave a ladder? Is he going to climb that ladder? What is going on with this ladder? Okay, this ladder is here to help us understand that Jesus didn't just say this one phrase. Jesus said several phrases in order. Because what we've learned in this series is there was something happening here. There was something building. You see, the very first phrase that Jesus used, this was a few weeks we talked about this, was blessed are those who are poor in spirit. This was the very first beatitude that Jesus spoke on the mountain that day. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. And we learned that week that what that meant was poor in spirit isn't um, somebody who's, you know, kind of hunched over and just feeling very, you know, lowly and, and poor, you know. Poor in spirit just means I understand my situation. I understand that, that there is a, a gap between me and God that I'll never be able to fill. Because to fill that gap, I would have to live a perfect life. To come in contact, to have a relationship with a perfect God. So no matter how hard I try, unless he finds a way to work down towards me, I'm never going to be good enough to work my way up to him. And you know what's crazy? I feel like today, we still have a hard time grasping this because we think, well, maybe I could be good enough. Well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. And we hope that that'll be enough to restore this relationship that will, will allow us to go to God because we go to church this many times. We're a good person. We don't do too much of this. We give some money, you know. But actually, what God is looking for is, is for us to come to a place in our lives of, of acknowledging, of realizing, poor in spirit means that, that we can never do it. On our own, we can never do it. Then, the very next week, on the very next week, I, I spoke about it the very next week, but the very next sentence that Jesus spoke after being poor in spirit was, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And while we acknowledge that there is a blessing we can receive from God, he'll be comforting us during the times where we go through mourning, whether it be the loss of a loved one or a loss of a situation in our life that brings sadness, he will be there to comfort us. What he was actually saying is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. These two work their way up the ladder. Because when you realize that you're poor in spirit, that there is a, a barrier between you and God, 
it should hopefully bring us to a place of sadness, of saying, God, I, I'm mourning that. I wish there was something I can do, but I, I'm very aware of the fact that, that I'm kind of sad here this morning. I'm, I'm mourning the fact that there's nothing that I can do to ever be good enough, to, to live enough, you know, live a good enough life. So Jesus is kind of building here, pouring spirit, those who mourn. And then last week, we talked about, Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. We talked about the fact that the meekness isn't weakness, Let's ram it again. <laughs> Meekness isn't weakness. It's simply power under control. It's the power we have submitted to God. But there's a sense of humility that comes with being meek. And if you look at it in context of what Jesus is saying, the poor in spirit, and in fact, I, I, I loved this illustration because I didn't realize at the time just how powerful it was, but I can't stop thinking about it now. This, this week we spoke about the poor in spirit. I talked about the, the Chilean miners uh, if you remember, it happened about 15 years ago. They got trapped underground. There was 33 miners were trapped underground, and they were trapped underground for several months. But fortunately, people from above were able to get words to them. They found out they were still alive, and, and they were able to communicate with them. But the reality is, these Chilean miners could do nothing. They were trapped underground. There was nothing they could do to get out of their situation they had to rely on people on the outside rescuing them. In just the same way, being poor in spirit is understanding that we have to rely on God rescuing us. Jesus is teaching on a mountainside and he is the rescuer. He's the solution. He's the one who's come to rescue. So we now understand what it means to acknowledge being poor in spirit, to, to mourn that situation, to realize there's nothing we can do to come with humility and meekness and say, Jesus, I, I need you in my life. I'm gonna lay my pride aside. I'm not gonna give up trying to be the best I can be and trying to be, I, I, I'm just realizing, Jesus, I need to come with you in meekness and like a, a, a magnet drawing us up the ladder is the idea that the reason I wanna kind of work my way through all of these is because of this hunger and this thirst deep down within me to be righteous, to be in good standing with God, to be a part of this community of people who know Jesus. That's what I'm looking for this morning. That's what I'm hungry and thirsty. And the question I would ask all of us this morning as we, as we think about this, this, this final beatitude, because it's not the final one. You're gonna find out next week that there's, there continues on, but this is kind of the final one in the first section. So the first four kind of show us this, this action plan of where we need to be. And then when we've figured this out, the next four are then how we need to live our lives after that. But this kind of shows us the state of affairs. So the question I have for you this morning is, where's your appetite? How hungry and thirsty are you this morning? Or maybe another way of ask, asking that question is, is what are you hungry and thirsty for? What in your life are you hungering after? What are you, you thirsty for in your life? Is it God or is it something else? Because I would throw out a little challenge here this morning as somebody who has been a follower of Jesus for a long time. I'm not sure that things other than God will ever fill you like God can fill you. 
Earlier this week, it was my wife's birthday, Monday of this week. Happy birthday, Casey. And uh, as a family, I mean, she got probably one of the best presents, and that was spending the day with her family, me and her and the three kids. And we got away for a little impromptu trip, and we went up to Michigan City. We'd never been there before. It's very nice. There's a lake there and kind of like a beach feel to it. And it was just beautiful, lovely weather. There was an outlet mall, so everyone was happy. We got to do some beach stuff. We got to shop, so uh, we checked all the boxes. But one, the first night, actually, that we were there, the first Monday, we, we'd been busy all day. We'd spent some time on the beach, and then we had some lunch, and then we went out and did some shopping. So it was, it was dinner time, and we were nowhere near ready for dinner. We still had to shower, go home, get the sand off us, you know, get dressed for the evening. But it was dinner time. We were starting to get hungry. So because it was Casey's birthday, we had dessert before dinner. We kind of cheated a little bit, and we went to Bubbles, which is an ice cream shop in uh, Michigan City, and uh, you can see all of us there. I'm the guy at the back by the cash register, as always. But yeah, there we were. <laughs> we all got ice cream, and it was brilliant. It was lovely. It's like dinner time, and we're eating ice cream and drinking milkshakes. <laughs> America. <laughs> it's the national food. So we, we loved it. But you know what? About an hour later, guess what? We were still hungry. <laughs> We ate a pretty decent amount of ice cream. But what we discovered was that it didn't really fill us. It was fun eating dinner, dessert before dinner, but it didn't really fill us. There's a great verse in Isaiah, in the Old Testament. It's the prophet Isaiah. is talking about um, receiving all that we can receive from God. And there's a version of the Bible, a translation called The Message, which kind of takes the, the Bible and really kind of tries to, to break it down to the simplest language possible. And listen to how the message translates Isaiah 55 to. Why do you spend your money on junk food, your hard-earned cash on cotton candy? Listen to me, listen well. Eat only the best. Fill yourself with only the finest. This prophet who has this incredible relationship with God is saying, listen, why are you pursuing other things? There's nothing wrong with, with having a desire for being hungry and thirsty for things in this life. But, but the greatest thing, I believe, and Jesus is teaching this this day on the mountain, the greatest thing that we can hunger and thirst for is righteousness, to be in good standing with God. And it's like a, a magnet that draws us through the idea of being poor in spirit, mourning that, coming with meekness and humility, saying, God, I can't do this in my own strength, but I do want you. I want you to change my life. I want you to change my life like I've seen you change the lives of my friends and families who have a relationship with you. So what are you hungry for this morning? What are you thirsty for? If it's good standing with God, if it's having a relationship with him that was made possible through Jesus and his death on the cross, then according to Matthew 5, verse 6, if that's what you're hungry, if that's what you're thirsty for this morning, you will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. And because of Jesus, they now can be filled because we can be in good standing with God through Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. Lord, every one of us, if we're honest, hunger and thirst for something in our lives. And if we're not sure what it is, we can just look at where our priorities are, what we pursue, what we work towards, and, and probably those are the things that we hunger and thirst for the most. But sometimes, Lord, we've discovered in our lives that things that we hunger and thirst for, things that we thought would fill us, oftentimes either fill us temporarily or still leave us feeling empty. And I think that's because, God, 
I think that's because there is something that we can get from you. There is something out of a relationship we can have with you that fills us completely, fills us stuffed full. So I pray this morning, Lord, that those words spoken by Jesus 2,000 years ago would ring in our ears this morning, that we would, would leave here this morning saying, Jesus, I want to hunger and thirst for you. I want to be hungry and thirsty for you in my life. And thank you, Jesus, that, that because of that hunger and thirst, we don't then need to work hard. We can just come to you, and you will meet us where we are. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.